Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. And welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined, as always, by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist. Today, we continue our series with scientists with guest Alex Crow in a discussion about the latest lab techniques to overcome male factor concerns. Alex is an embryologist that works at Melbourne IVF. Having completed her Master's of Clinical Embryology in 2017, Alex has experience in oocyte and sperm preparation, ICSI, embryo vitrification, and she works closely with the team of Melbourne IVF specialists. Welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Alex, tell us a little bit about how you became an embryologist. Well, I started my university degree at Monash University with a Bachelor of Science, and I always had a real interest in the reproductive side of science and I followed the pathway of doing a graduate diploma in reproductive science and then wanted to go further and do a master of clinical embryology where I could learn how to do the lab techniques of IVF. And what do you love about being an embryologist? I think I love how unique it is and when you talk to people about it, it's something that not many people really know much about, um, the day-to-day life of um, behind the scenes of an IVF lab. And it is really quite special that you can have such an impact in someone's life. And you might come to work every day and do your normal job, but it's when you speak to the patients or you're speaking to family at home and you realise how big of an impact you can actually make. I think as Rayleigh has touched on before, this is an area of medicine where there's a real team working together and whilst the patient might know the doctor, actually there's tens of people behind the scenes helping to make this baby. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. We've got quite a large team. Um, So there's a lot of hands-on for each particular patient. So yeah, when you get a good outcome, it feels like everyone's kind of contributed in a way. And there's a lot of people celebrating that outcome. Yeah, definitely. A lot of the time in fertility medicine, women present considering that the problem is them. And I think one of the issues there is that still society brings us up to think of fertility as a woman's issue. Hmm. But at least 50% of the time, male factor concerns are involved in why a couple are not able to conceive naturally yep. and in a way IVF is really a terrific solution for some male factor concerns that result in failure of conception happening in a natural way and just like any problem in medicine there are really concerns that lie on a spectrum. A lot of patients think of IVF as a last resort And some people like to try 
a technique called IUI for male factor concerns. From a scientist's perspective, can you tell us about what's involved in getting sperm ready for IUI, which stands for intrauterine insemination? Yeah, definitely. So the male partner will drop off his um, sperm pot to the lab and from there we take the semen sample and we put it on a what's called a density gradient and that acts as a microscopic grid. So theoretically only the motile sperm can get through it and we spin it on a centrifuge and after about 10-15 minutes only we hope only the motile sperm are at the bottom of the tube with the gradient in it and that's a way to filter out the immotile or the non-moving sperm so that at the end we've got a nice clean sample with only motile sperm in it and in the lab we like to see four million motile sperm in a mill of media that we then pass to the doctor to do the IUI. And sometimes we have a patient where we've looked at the semen analysis on paper out of context and then on the day of IUI, the sample that they produce doesn't meet that criteria for prepped sperm. Yeah, yeah. Every day can really have a different semen sample and sometimes a patient will come in and produce a sample and it's below our threshold that we'd like to see and occasionally we will call them back to produce a second sample and sometimes that second sample can be 10 times better than the first sample so it can change quite a lot day to day or week to week or even after a couple of hours. Yeah, it's quite amazing. And then with IUI, what I'm doing from a clinical perspective, often the woman has had some medication in the lead up to the day of ovulation. We're trying to do the IUI procedure on the day that ovulation is going to happen just before ovulation happens. And often I've given the woman some medication so that she's ovulating two or three eggs instead of just one which is why the technique is often associated with a high risk of twins compared to natural conception. And then we put the sperm through a little tube through the cervix and inject it into the fallopian tubes. In nature, the fallopian tubes are where the egg and sperm get together and the environment travelling down the fallopian tubes changes from one end near the fimbri, which is the little ends of the tubes that pick up the egg, to the uterine environment, which is the ultimate destination as an embryo travels down the tube. When we do IVF, are we trying in the lab to be the world's best fallopian tube? We're trying, yes. (laughs) Um, I mean, when we're growing our embryos and at that initial day one, we use media that tries to replicate the fallopian tubes as best as possible. And then when the embryo grows further on onto day two, three, four, five, which is when it would be starting to enter the uterus, we use a different kind of media which tries to replicate the uterine environment. 
So we do try as best as possible, yeah. And unlike IUI where it's kind of a technique we try to theoretically improve the concentration of sperm reaching the egg but in a way that is completely blind, we can't see what's happening, it's all relying on processes happening in the body with a bit of help. In IVF, what are the ways that we can improve fertilisation for malfactor concerns? If on the day we find that the sperm isn't a concentration or motility that is what we'd like to see, it might be a bit low, then we can do what's called ICSI, and ICSI is where we manually inject the a single sperm into a single egg, and that hopes to solve the the problem of naturally the sperm might not be able to get into the egg itself. Alice, can you walk us through what you do when you perform ICSI? With the eggs, once they're collected, they are surrounded by what kind of looks like a, a cloud of cells and they're called the cumulus cells. And we have to... Like clouds. Yes, little fluffy clouds with a black dot inside them, which is the egg. And we have to remove those fluffy cells off them so that we can see the egg nice and clearly to be able to inject the sperm in. So we call this denuding the eggs, which is where you remove those cells. And then we prepare the sperm through this density gradient that I was mentioning so that we get a nice clean sample of motile sperm and then under a really high powered microscope we can then find a sperm that we like the look of we kink its tail to immobilize it and then we can suck the sperm up a tiny little injection needle pipette and then we get our egg we position the egg so we can see it nice and clearly and we put the injection needle into the egg and deposit the sperm and then take the injection needle back out and leave the eggs then to hopefully fertilize when you inject the egg alex do you try and inject at any particular point on the egg Yeah, so we position the eggs so that there's one polar body on the egg, which indicates that it's mature, and we position that polar body at 12 o'clock, so directly above the the egg, and then we inject at 3 o'clock. And the aim of that is to put the needle into the egg not to disturb the spindles, which are what hold on to the chromosomes in division. So we don't want to disturb any of those to hopefully let the egg do its division normally once it's fertilised. And with ICSI, sometimes eggs can be injured by the process. What do you do differently with laser-assisted ICSI? I mean, ICSI is in a way invasive, um, even though we try not to be. Sometimes eggs are a bit more fragile and occasionally you can see what's called degeneration. So the egg didn't survive the ICSI procedure. And what we can do then is um, perhaps in in the next cycle, we can do laser-assisted ICSI, which is where we use a laser beam and where we would normally 
inject the egg at that three o'clock site, we pass a little laser beam which creates micro holes in the zona pellucida, which is the shell of the egg, I guess, and that assists us then to put the injection needle through those holes and hopefully then it's not as invasive because we've sort of assisted the injection a little bit with some micro holes. So, yeah, hopefully that would help the eggs not to degenerate after that. Alex, what do you expect as a fertilisation rate with ICSI? Last year we had an ICSI fertilisation rate of about 65% of uh, mature eggs. That sounds pretty good, 65%. Yeah, and I think when you're telling patients the fertilisation rate, sometimes they sometimes it depends what they're expecting, but sometimes patients want all their eggs to fertilise, which obviously we do as well. But yeah, realistically, it's about 65%. And of course, that's an average estimation when you look at all eggs fertilised with sperm by ICSI, but any given patient in any given cycle can perform above average or below average. So I think it's it's really important to point out that not every egg can make a baby and it's always going to be about half the eggs that fertilise for most people rather than the whole number. Now, one of the things clinically that I think it, it's a challenge for patients emotionally in IVF is even though we spend a lot of time before treatment counselling patients about expected outcomes at different stages of IVF, it still feels like a blow as you see those numbers dwindle because it's always going to be a certain number of follicles you see on ultrasound before an egg collection and then quite often the number of eggs is a little bit less than the number of follicles and then you get your phone call the next day and a lower number of fertilised eggs occur than the total number of eggs collected and then you get your updates on your embryology and not every egg that fertilised correctly goes on to make an embryo and not every embryo goes on to make a baby and so there's this cascade of attrition really Um, And that's expected in IVF, but as it's happening, it feels disappointing, even if you know as a patient that it's going to happen intellectually. Definitely, yeah. Alex, when you make those calls in the lab um, to tell the patient how many eggs have fertilised, what's your experience of patients' reaction to that information on that day? It's definitely varied. I mean, sometimes you call a patient and... They've got two eggs fertilised out of 10 and they're wrapped to have two eggs. And sometimes they'll have 10 eggs fertilised out of 12 and they say, oh, but what happened to the other two? So, yeah, it definitely varies. I guess it comes down to their experience of what's been before as well. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes in previous treatments they might have had a failed fertilisation cycle and we've changed something different in this cycle and we've got a few eggs fertilised and they're wrapped about that. So, yeah, it definitely depends on their previous treatments and, and how much they know about what to expect. I think one of the things we can do to arm patients with just a, a resilience is to educate and inform because it's a real slap in the face if you weren't expecting, you know, kind of the reality if you if you have 
false expectations from the beginning. Definitely. You mentioned before about when you choose a sperm for ICSI, that you choose a sperm that you like the look of. Yes. Through an ICSI microscope, what would make you like the look of a sperm? So we look at how well the sperm are swimming. We like to see sperm swimming forward and not around in circles. And we also don't want to see them moving too quickly or too slowly, just really controlled. And then we look at their head and the head of the sperm and we try to make sure that there's a good shape to the head and then also the mid piece, which is kind of like the neck of the sperm. We want to see that um, in a nice shape as well, not too big and fat and also not too skinny. And there's another technique called IMSI that can be used as an advanced laboratory technique to choose a sperm from ICSI with more detail. Can you explain how IMSI is done and who it might be chosen for? We've spoken quite a bit in the podcast about ICSI before, but not so much about IMSI. What does IMSI stand for? So IMSI stands for Intracytoplasmic Morphologically Selected Sperm Injection. And it's a technique used where we use a very, very high magnified lens in the microscope so we can see the sperm head really clearly and almost what's inside the sperm head, which is where the DNA is all kept. So we've got a particular look that we're after and there's things called vacuoles inside sperm sometimes and we preferentially don't want to see too many vacuoles or too many big vacuoles. So we're looking for sperm really close up um, that don't have any vacuoles in them if possible and they're the sperm that we'll select and, and pick up for the injection. And Alex, is there a reason we don't do IMSI all the time for malfactor? What's involved that makes it kind of only useful in certain cases? Yeah, so it it does take a lot longer to perform and it is not needed for every patient. So if there's a few cycles where you're just not seeing fertilization or you've got um, sperm with a low morphology, then that way we can go in and try and select the sperm that look morphologically the best. But if you've got a semen analysis where the morphology is okay, then we wouldn't see uh, IMSI as necessary and just normal ICSI would, would be okay. And as you were mentioning before, the, the preparation of sperm for normal ICSI um, does get rid of some of the dud sperm yeah, quite a lot of them. Yes, yep. In the first place. So the actual wash of the sperm is important. What when um I've looked at the data on IMSI, really unfortunately, the data of how much it improves outcomes for patients can only be seen in a population of patients where standard ICSI hasn't been enough. Like if you look at all male factor infertility, IMSI doesn't necessarily stand out as a technique that radically helps and that's because ICSI itself is so kind of game-changing for most of those patients. So it would only be the minority of male factor infertility that 
really benefit from IMSI if you look at the clinical data from trials? Yeah, sometimes it might just be something that we we do as as a last resort if there's other things that haven't worked before. Yeah, it wouldn't be something that you'd go for straight away. Yeah, and a lot of labs don't offer it. A lot of labs wouldn't have the capability to do IMSI. Why would a lab not have the capability to do it? Um, it does require a particular lens in a microscope. So it's. I think it would be the actual hardware that you're required to perform the IMSI. And unfortunately, there's no Medicare item number for these techniques. So a lot of the high-end techniques that we use in advanced science, unfortunately, equipment is very, very expensive and training scientists have the acumen to do the evaluation, takes a lot of um, additional training and and resources within the lab to be able to do it. Um, For example, Alex was saying that it does take a lot longer, so that means to treat the same number of patients, you need more staff allocated and... Unfortunately, that's really only available in the private sector and only really available uh, at labs that really invest in staff and technology, like Melbourne IVF. Alex, some of my patients have no sperm at all, like zero sperm count, and they have a a situation that in medical language is called azoospermia, so no sperm at all in the ejaculate. And it can be obstructive, meaning there can be a blockage that sperm can't get out to the outside world, which can be congenital or it can be acquired because of previous surgery um, where the ducts that deliver the sperm to the ejaculate have been injured, for example, hernia surgery. Cystic fibrosis carriers often have um, congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens. Um, Sometimes STIs can cause a blockage, so having had something like chlamydia or gonorrhea or syphilis can cause a blockage and so sometimes um, and sometimes obviously one of the other reasons is you could want to have a blockage to stop you from having further babies like a vasectomy and then you might decide that you've changed your mind and that does happen also. One of the ways I sometimes retrieve sperm for men in that situation is by doing a fine needle sperm aspiration of the testis And when I do that, I have a scientist like yourself helping me find the sperm. When I give you a sample of tubules, which is like the stringy sperm containing tubes from inside the testis from a core biopsy of my needle, what do you do to find the sperm for me? So we receive the tubules, which kind of look like little spaghettis. And we have little needles, which we in the dish with the tubules, we, what's called milk the tubules. So you run the needle down the length of the tubule in the hope that the sperm are pushed out through the tube and into the dish with the media and the tubes in it. And we do that for oh, 10, 15 minutes and make sure we've really, really teased them out nice and well. And then we take the the fluid that the tubules are sitting in in that dish and we put it in a a tube and put it in the centrifuge which we use to spin the sperm down and we then once it's been spun down in the centrifuge we have a little pellet at the bottom which is everything that's been collected down into the bottom and 
we then hopefully are able to see some motile sperm in that sample. So because we don't put them through a, a gradient like we do the normal ejaculates, you will have some emotile sperm in there as well, but we don't want to put it through a gradient in case we lose some sperm that we don't want to lose in that gradient. So we just do a normal wash and then we plate what we call plating it out. So we put the, the sperm sample that we've got in the pellet at the bottom of the tube onto a dish and we look at it under the high-powered ICSI microscope and we then try and find the motile sperm in, in that sample. And sometimes it can be quite difficult. Um, sometimes we can spend hours and hours looking down that microscope trying to find a motile sperm. And then once we've found it, we pick it up with the injection needle and then put it with the egg, inject it into the egg like normal ICSI. Sometimes if sperm's not motile, there's a few things you can do that you have up your sleeve, a few party tricks to wake it up. Yes, yes. So we've got something called Pentox, which we can, uh, it's like a liquid again. We can put it over the top of the sperm sample when we're looking down the microscope. And miraculously, sometimes you can see some sperm start twitching. And that's when you know that they're actually, I guess, alive and you can then go and pick those up and inject them into the egg. What happens if you inject an egg with an immotile sperm? Well, I've never done it, <laughs> but I would assume that it's got a, a, a next to no chance of fertilising the egg. So you need to know that that sperm is alive. You need to show see signs of life. Definitely, yes. Yeah. So we always like to inject an egg with a sperm that's even just twitching. It doesn't like if we're very desperate to find a sperm that's just moving, we'll go with an even twitching one. And in terms of future directions of the lab for malfactor infertility, are there any things that you've heard of on the horizon that you think show a lot of promise? We haven't really heard of anything lately. I know that there's a lot of talk even when I was at uni, about microfluidics for sperm selection. And that would be instead of putting it on a, a density gradient like what we use at the moment, you're putting it in a little dish with these little micro canals. And the idea would be that the motile sperm can get down the canals and the immotile sperm can't. But I'm not sure how much that's been researched yet and we don't have that in our lab. It takes a long time for things to go from a research phase to being in clinical practice. Definitely and we definitely don't introduce things into our lab without thoroughly trialling them first. Even introducing a new kind of oil which we're looking at at the moment, we're not allowing it in the lab full-time yet we're just still trialling it. So, yeah, we definitely are cautious in adding new things into the lab before we've fully looked at them and made sure that there's no harmful effects. I think that's very important. I think rushing into new technologies before they're ready um, can do harm as well as good and we have to be innovative and creative but also responsible in our choices. Definitely. And only adding things in one at a time so you can really see the effect
and if that one thing's had an impact. And I'll ask you one more question, Alex, which is a little bit off topic. But when we used to do PGT, which is genetic testing of embryos, we always, always used to use a single sperm injection with ICSI. Nowadays in the lab when we do PGT for chromosome count, not necessarily for monogenic conditions like a serious tiny little DNA change, but when we do it for full chromosome analysis, for example, in the context of ageing for women and increased rates of chromosome abnormalities in embryos, we now dollop sperm next to the egg um, if the sperm quality is adequate as opposed to always using ICSI. Yeah. So I guess that points to the fact that we don't use ICSI for everyone. We only use ICSI when it's completely and utterly necessary. Why is that? I think if you've got a sperm sample that's morphologically good, the concentration's good, the motility's good, there wouldn't be much reason not to do IVF. ICSI ultimately is an invasive procedure and... IVF would be allowing the egg in a way to select the sperm itself and, and, and do that naturally. So I think if you don't need to do ICSI, IVF is potentially better. Exactly. Potentially better. Yeah. And if you think about it, when we do IVF and for everyone listening, when we say standard insemination, where we dollop sperm next to the egg, that's what we call IVF as scientists and doctors. I know IVF generically is kind of used as a term to refer to the whole process regardless of fertilization, but that's what we mean when we say IVF. It's a massive intervention. Like IUI is a massive intervention where we take the, you know, kind of Olympic team of sperm to the finish line and drop them, you know, okay from the finish line in what would otherwise be a marathon. That's a massive intervention. IVF insemination is when we dollop the Olympic team right on the egg. <laughs> you know, So that in itself is a massive intervention. So we're still doing a lot for male factor infertility even with those techniques. And I guess as a doctor where I'm going with this is that ICSI is not always better. It's a game changer for some where natural fertilisation, IUI fertilisation, IVF fertilisation might not ever be able to occur and those men if it wasn't for ICSI which was only discovered in the 90s by accident if it wasn't for ICSI they'd need donor sperm to have a family whereas we can help them have their own family with their own sperm through technology through today's technology. One concern about that is that we are passing on male factor infertility through ICSI and we've seen that in studies showing a higher burden of malfactor infertility in second generation males who have been conceived by ICSI. Because they had problems and they've passed that on. That's right. They wouldn't have reproduced and they did. Um, but my take on that is that if today's technologies overcome the problem, tomorrow's technology is going to be better, not worse. And otherwise IVF babies are healthy, normal. In some ways, in some studies have been shown to have better academic results. Oh, um, it's probably a little bit of population bias because they are very much wanted, sought after, fought for children. And I'm sure if you asked any parent, they would still rather have a child than no child at all. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for coming on Knocked Up. It's been a delight having you. Thank you so much. Alex, I need to ask you my question. Yes. 
in your time as a scientist, what is the most exciting technological development you've seen? I think the ICSI procedure would have to be up there as one of the best. And even the whole process of a testicular biopsy procedure with a patient who has a very, very low sperm production. And there was a case recently where I spent all day collecting this testicular biopsy sample, all day looking down the microscope and did the ICSI procedure. And then the next morning I came in and I think they had 10 out of 12 eggs fertilized. And it was so rewarding to know that all my hard work that I'd spent all day was actually worth it. <laughs> Amazing. And that, that couple will most likely be able to have a family because of what you did that day. Yeah. So it's, it is, it's very cool and pretty novel. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. 